Well, someone read the title this morning and said, this is going to be deep, and it could be deep, or you could fall into deep sleep tonight, today, I mean. We're going to look at uh, Romans chapter 9, a a chapter that's been debated for hundreds of years, Uh, but here's the recap of where we've been uh, before Advent in the Christmas season. Romans 1 through 3 Paul talked about the condemnation of all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, both Jew and Gentile. And if we're not Jewish, we're Gentiles, by the way. Uh, Romans 3, 21 through chapter 5, Paul talked about justification. In other words, all have been made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, not by works, not by race, not by righteous acts. And then he moves on to chapter 8 through or 6 through 8.17, he talked about the sanctification of the believer. We're being made holy. We're all experiencing a new life in Christ. We're more than conquerors through Christ who saved us. And then in chapter 8, 18 through chapter 9, the glorification. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, not even death. We have eternal Security with God. Now, having looked at all of these theological concepts, it would make sense to jump to chapter 12, when, where Paul said, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, let us offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Man, we have so much to celebrate who we are in Christ. But instead, we go to chapter 9, 9, 10, and 11, which is a little detour talking about the election of Israel. And it seems out of context in some ways, but it's not. Here's the context. In, in Paul's day, Gentiles were responding to the gospel in hordes, in record numbers, in revival fashion. And by and large, the Jews were rejecting the message of the gospel. Now, there were some who did receive Christ in the gospel message, but Israel, by and large, did not. And so, in Romans 9, Paul presupposes the question that what Jews would be asking. They'd be asking, Paul, if, it's, if this is true, what you're saying, that both Jews and Gentiles are justified, sanctified, will be glorified by faith and not by works or law, then, then where do we stand? We, the true Israel, the, the Jews, where do we stand? What advantage do we have? Paul utilizes these kinds of questions, presupposing what his readers would be thinking throughout the book of Romans. For example, in Romans 4, 6, and 7, he begins, what shall we say then? For example, in, I think in chapter 6 or 7, Paul says, what shall we say then? If, we can, if, we're for, if all our sin is forgiven, then, or if we're saved by grace, then can we continue to sin? You know, and so he presupposes these questions and he addresses them. So in chapter 9, we can assume that Paul is once again presupposing a, this question that the Jews would have been thinking. Has God broken his covenant p- promises to us, the Jews, by choosing the Gentiles? We are the chosen people. We think similar questions at times about God's promises, especially when we're go- going through difficult times, you know. Of God's 
7,173 verses in the Bible, there are 7,487 promises of God. That's almost 25% of all scripture are God breathing his promises to us. And sometimes, like when I was on my sabbatical, um, I went through a really difficult time physically, emotionally, spiritually even, and I questioned God a lot. Where are you, God? Where's the joy that you promised? Where's the healing that we just sang about? Where's the... And, and so I was questioning God for weeks on end. But the only thing I could do is turn to God's promises and memorize them and meditate on them and pray them, and I did so. And they ultimately brought strength and healing to me. The promises of God, the word of God. So about, uh, the Apostle Paul begins in verse 1, and I speak the truth in Christ. Like, this is a promise. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. In other words, what I'm about to say to you is the truth. It comes from God. I am inspired by the Holy Spirit. Cross my heart, hope to die. This is the truth. Times 10. This is truly the heart of God. And then Paul next answers the question that would have been lingering by addressing Eight advantages that the Jews have. What advantages do we have? Well, much in every way. Here they are. Verse 4. Theirs, speaking of the people of Israel, is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. That very last phrase, who is God over all, who is God over all? Well, Messiah, Jesus. Jesus is God over all. Well, here are the promises again. We are adop- you are adopted as God's people. You are adopted. You, are, you have received divine glory. In other words, you, you've been the recipients of this divine glory, meaning the Shekinah glory, the the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that appeared before the Ark of the Covenant in the temp- temple, and they saw manifest God, God's presence. You have the covenant promises made to Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and the pro- prophets. You have the law of Moses uh, received on Mount Sinai. You have the temple worship in Jerusalem, the promised land that you are now living in. You have the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. You have the lineage to the Messiah from Adam to Christ. It is through your people that Christ came to us, the Messiah. Has God broken his promises? Has he failed us? Verse 6 It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring." God has not failed you, Israel, but the true Israel are those who believe, believe in the Messiah. Just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're a child of God. The children of the promise are those who have faith in the Messiah and the promises Jesus Christ himself. Children of the promise. 
There are way more Gentiles who had come to believe in Christ as Jesus Christ, the Messiah, than Jews during Paul's day. And so they would have been struggling. Paul says, not all who are in Israel are the true Israel. Therefore, God would set aside the unbelieving Israelites who wouldn't believe, and he would, in fact, allow them to harden, and he would choose the Gentile people to, um, to now be used for his glory, those who believed in Jesus. And Paul summarized this truth of chapter 9 at the very end, as if he were saying, I'm going to wrap up my thoughts here. I'm going to summarize my thoughts. And we read those. What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, that being Jesus. So Paul argues throughout his letter that this is the faith that is required to become children of God. It's not by your race, it's not by your righteous acts, but it's by faith in Jesus you become a child of God. Now many would argue that chapters 9 through 11 of Romans are primarily talking about God's sovereignty to choose whomever he wants to, to predestine or elect individuals for salvation, some to go to hell, some to go to heaven. I've predestined you, I've not predestined you for eternal life. And those who are hardcore Calvinists would use especially verses 9 through 16 in chapter 9 to support their their uh, argument. They would say, for this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And that son would have been the promised one of Isaac and not Ishmael, who was uh, born by Hagar, the, the servant. Verse 10, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's an idiom. It doesn't mean hate in the same way that we would think of it. Verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now the Calvinists would say, are we not, is not Paul using examples of individuals here to talk about his election? Isaac was chosen, not Ishmael. Jacob was chosen, not Esau. Pharaoh was not chosen. He was hardened. Moses was chosen. <clears throat> well, God in his sovereignty has the right to choose me if he wants to and call me into the ministry. I choose you, John. Okay, praise you, Lord. But my friend Herb from my home, hometown, I'm not going to choose him. He's predestined for eternal destruction. Well, that's too bad for Herb. 
But the only thing you could do, John, is thank God that you are predestined, you're elected, you're chosen by God. Thank you, God. But I would argue that Paul is addressing not individuals here, but he's addressing nations. These nations through whom, uh, through the individuals that he mentioned. For example, in, in chapter 9, he uses the term Israel exclusively. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, speaking of the nation of Israel, whenever he's talking about the Israelites or the Jews in Romans, he used the term Jews. But here in these three chapters, 9, 10, 11, Israel. Well, how can I make that conclusion when Paul clearly names individuals as examples? I can't, I can't unpack it all, but I'll give you one example. Paul quotes from Malachi 1, verses 2 through 5, not Genesis. Malachi would have been a prophet who lived hundreds of years after the Genesis account of Jacob and Esau. And he quotes this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yes, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. There's the quote. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Verse 4, Edom may say, Who's Edom? Edom is the, is the nation that came from Esau. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel or Jacob, the nation Israel are the descendants of Jacob, not descendants, the, uh, yeah. Again, Jacob represents Israel, Esau, Edom. <clears throat> In this nation, Edom had unleashed all kinds of evil against Israel for hundreds of years, and their hearts became harder and more wicked over time, to the point where God says, Edom, I'm gonna, you're, you're going to be punished now. <clears throat> Here, here's the argument in chart form. <clears throat> Abraham had, and Sarah had their firstborn, well, Abraham had Ishmael with Hagar, thinking that could be the promised child. But God said, no, um, I'm going to choose the secondborn, or East Isaac, to be, uh, to be my chosen person, to serve my lineage to the Messiah. And then Isaac grew up, and of course, he, he had twins with his wife, had Esau and Jacob, and the Jewish culture would say that Esau should inherit the rights, you know, to be the authority and to receive all the privileges, but no, God says, I choose Jacob, who later would become the nation Israel. All right, so we're thinking of that, and then now in Romans 9, God says, Israel, you are my firstborn. I've chosen you, first to the Jews, but because of your disobedience, I'm going to choose the secondborn, the Gentiles. That's his argument in chapter 9 here. Um, and to add further fuel to this argument, Genesis 25. <clears throat> and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, Rebekah, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. <clears throat> two nations are in your wombs. <clears throat> Again, this is what, excuse me, this is what Romans 9 
this is the context of the book of Romans. The nation Israel is questioning, what about us? Why the Gentiles? So Paul is addressing it. Israel's heart had become so hardened through the years of un- their years of unbelief that uh, God would turn away from them for a season, and he would reveal himself to the Gentiles. Even in the Old Testament, God revealed himself over and over again to the, to the Israelites, the Jews, you know, the divided sea and the manna from the sky and the victories when Jesus came, the victories and the, the miracles of healings. And God incarnate himself was right in front of us, and yet they rejected him. So by God's sovereign choice, his sovereignty, he chose to use the Gentiles to display his glory because the nation of Israel had hardened their collective hearts, especially toward his greatest revelation, Jesus Christ. And Paul turns to the Old Testament scriptures in verses 25 through 29. I'll just read one of these Old Testament prophecies. He says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Who's he speaking about? The Gentiles. I'm going to call them my people who are not my people now, the Gentiles. And I will make them my people. Okay, that's the theological part. You can wake up. This will get a little more interesting Um, We can understand the election of a nation rather than individuals. But the Calvinists would say, but God still uses a lot of other scriptures in God's word to speak of the election of individuals. For example, Ephesians 1, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Does that not apply to me as an individual? Well, it doesn't really matter if you're a Calvinist or if you're on the other end, an Armenian. Um, We're going to watch a video to see, distinguish the difference between those two lines of thinking before I conclude. Calvinism versus Arminianism. Which view is correct? Calvinism and Arminianism are two systems of theology that attempt to explain the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in the matter of salvation. Calvinism is named for John Calvin, a French theologian who lived from 1509 to 1564. Arminianism is named for Jacobus Arminius, a Dutch theologian who lived from 1560 to 1609. Both systems can be summarized with five points. Calvinism holds to the total depravity of man, while Arminianism holds to partial depravity. Calvinism's doctrine of total depravity states that every aspect of humanity is corrupted by sin. Therefore, human beings are unable to come to God on their own accord. Partial depravity states that every aspect of humanity is tainted by sin, but not to the extent that human beings are unable to place faith in God of their own accord. Note, Classical Arminianism rejects partial depravity and holds a view very close to Calvinistic total depravity, although the extent and meaning of the depravity are debated in Arminian circles. In general, Arminians believe that there is an intermediate state between total depravity and salvation. In this state, made possible by prevenient grace, the sinner is being drawn to Christ and has the God-given ability to choose salvation. Calvinism includes the belief that election is unconditional, 
while Arminianism believes in conditional election. Unconditional election is the view that God elects individuals to salvation based entirely on his will, not on anything inherently worthy in the individual. Conditional election states that God elects individuals to salvation based on his foreknowledge of who will believe in Christ unto salvation, thereby on the condition that the individual chooses God. Calvinism sees the atonement as limited, while Arminianism sees it as unlimited. This is the most controversial of the five points. Limited atonement is the belief that Jesus only died for the elect. Unlimited atonement is the belief that Jesus died for all, but that his death is not effectual until a person receives him by faith. Calvinism includes the belief that God's grace is irresistible, while Arminianism says that an individual can resist the grace of God. Irresistible grace argues that when God calls a person to salvation, that person will inevitably come to salvation. Resistible grace states that God calls all to salvation, but that many people resist and reject this call. Calvinism holds to perseverance of the saints, while Arminianism holds to conditional salvation. Perseverance of the saints refers to the concept that a person who is elected by God will persevere in faith and will not permanently deny Christ or turn away from him. Conditional salvation is the view that a believer in Christ can, of his or her own free will, turn away from Christ and thereby lose salvation. Note, many Arminians deny conditional salvation and instead hold to eternal security. So, in the Calvinism versus Arminianism debate, who is correct? It is interesting to note that in the diversity of the body of Christ, there are all sorts of mixtures of Calvinism and Arminianism. There are five-point Calvinists and five-point Arminians, and at the same time, three-point Calvinists and two-point Arminians. Many believers arrive at some sort of mixture of the two views. Ultimately, it is our view that both systems fail and that they attempt to explain the unexplainable. Human beings are incapable of fully grasping a concept such as this. Yes, God absolutely is sovereign and knows all. Yes, human beings are called to make a genuine decision to place faith in Christ unto salvation. These two facts seem contradictory to us, but in the mind of God, they make perfect sense. Got questions? The Bible has answers, and we'll help you find them. Thank you, uh, gotquestions.org. Um, now, because I'm trying to explain the unexplainable, this sermon is a fail. It's a fail. <laughs> uh, so, you see this picture of a lady? Is it old lady or is it a young woman with a necklace on? Well, you can see either, you know? You can see either. Now, I can leave this up for the next half hour and you'd be great, right? Uh, so... You can Google that, old lady or young lady, and try and figure that out. But uh, different people see that picture differently in the same way when we view Scripture in some ways regarding this issue of election and free will, Arminian versus Calvinism, we can see, see it differently. Um, the five points of Calvinists, though, uh, fall under the acronym of TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And actually, Armenian has an acronym, too, is FACTS, F-A-C-T-S. You can look that up, too. Uh, but freedom is the first one, and etc. cetera. Uh, well, to prove their point, though, Calvinists will say, if this wasn't true, no one would ever complain, saying, 
It doesn't sound fair that God would choose some and others. And that's in fact what they're doing in verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who has formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out the same lump of clay, some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? But others would apply these same verses to the nation of Israel versus the Gentiles. Israel's complaining. And so God says, don't I have a right to choose the Gentiles at this time for my glory to use? And by the way, this passage has nothing to say with who's going to heaven and who's going to hell anywhere in chapter 9. It has to do with who God chooses to use for his glory and his purposes. But then Calvinists would say, what about John 6? No one can come to the Father. No one can come to me unless the Father sent who sent me draws them. Or, or John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you might go bear fruit. What about those verses? Well, Arminians would contend that I agree, no one can come to Christ without his prevenient grace, his grace that precedes your decision. It is he who draws us. God is always in the process of drawing one to salvation. But that doesn't negate our choice, whether we will accept or reject it, they would say. The key point is this. I would contend that God's predestination and free will are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Free will and predestination are not opposites. You know what, you know what are opposites? Having a free will and not having a free will. Those are opposites. But I would say that predestination and free will are both from God. Let me just share with you a couple examples. If I want to go home and watch Buffalo Bills play today, but we're going out to eat or something afterwards so I don't get home for two and a half hours after the game has started, then I will have set my DVR to watch the game. And when I get home, I'll start at the beginning and I'll be excited and I could fast forward the commercials and whatnot. But then I look at my cell phone before, the, before I watch the game and someone says, ah, oh, too bad that the Bills got crushed today. And I'm thinking, I didn't want to know that. I did not want to know that. And so now I'm watching the game and I know the Buffalo Bills are going to get killed and so I watch it and whatever, right? Well, I'm standing outside of the game. The game's already taking place and by me watching it, I'm not, I'm not infringing on the free will of the players at all, right? I cannot change the outcome or I will not change the outcome by me watching it. In the same sense, uh, God stands outside of time. We're on this linear time thing, you know. We, we see the present. But God stands outside of time. He knows that Billy Graham was going to receive him. He knows that Adolf Hitler was not and whatnot. He knows for all time. We don't know that. But that doesn't mean he is, he is, he is controlling our free will as if we're puppets or if we're, um, what else? Puppets or robots, right, robots. And, and Calvinists would say, well, no, of course we're not puppets and robots. 
Well, you use the example of where lumps of clay in the potter's hand. I'd rather be a puppet or robot than a lump of clay if indeed he's talking about individuals and God determining whether they have free will or not. That you have no free will, I choose you from the most important decision of whether you're, where you're going to end up for eternity. Yeah, you may have free will to go to Burger King or McDonald's today, but I'm going to determine. Another example, a father who is a CEO of a large company in a big city is on the top floor of this, this skyscraper. His office is up there overlooking the city, and he has an office next to his that he has predetermined for his son once he graduates from college to inherit and take over the company. Everything's in it. Ready-made, predetermined nation. Son graduates from college, said, Dad, you know what? I've been thinking, no thanks. I'm, I'm going to run off to California, and I'm going to live in a commune, and I'm going to party my way through life. Dad, thanks, but I don't want your life. He was predetermined, predestined to receive this, to become the CEO of the company, and the son said, no thank you. And the father does not seek to control his free will. Uh, one more example, a life preserver is tossed out to a drowning person, but that person is saved not by the rope or the life preserver. That can do nothing. They're saved by reaching out and grabbing hold of it. Well, God throws out the life preserver and the rope. We need to hold on to it if we want to be saved. And it is indeed God who pulls us into safety. God's a part of it all, but we need to respond by grabbing hold, the Arminian would say. So what about the illustration of Pharaoh then? What about Pharaoh? The scripture says about Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he has mercy and he hardens who he wants to harden. It is his predetermined sovereignty that will harden some and soften some. Well, God indeed hardened the heart of Pharaoh, but if you read the rest of the story in the Old Testament, you'll see that Pharaoh hardened his own heart before God ever hardened his heart. In fact, 20 times it talks about Pharaoh's hardened heart. In 10 of them, it is Pharaoh's doing that he hardens his own heart. For example, after the first plague, Pharaoh responds to Moses sarcastically, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? Exodus 8, after another of the plagues, when it led up, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron. Who hardened his heart? Well, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then there are other scriptures that said, Therefore God hardened his heart. Uh, the word harden in Hebrew means to strengthen or to make firm. In other words, God strengthened Pharaoh's resolve and made it even harder. I, I sat in the second row of a, a, a Christian Missionary Alliance church. There was an evangelist up there. I was with my friend, uh, and it was a salvation message. I was saved. My friend wasn't. He was literally shaking in that pew. Because, and he was sweating, and he couldn't wait to get out of there because the Holy Spirit was so convicting him to come forward and receive Christ. But ultimately, he didn't. And over the years, his heart, I've watched his heart become harder and harder and harder to the point now where he can't stand Christians. He was at a tender spot there 
and now he's much harder. In Romans 1, Paul says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts. He gave them over. He hardened them because that was their trajectory. So there are three possibilities regarding free will and predestination. God could have chosen a universe with no free will. We have no choice in the matter. Only God does. We're nothing more than robots, puppets, or lumps of clay. Number two, God could have chosen a universe where all are free to choose and all will choose to, re- to know him. That'd be nice, but it's not happening. Or thirdly, God could have chosen a universe where some freely believe and some will not. I believe that third example displays the truth reflected in the heart of Paul. Verse 2 of 9, check this out. Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. In other words, I would offer myself to be condemned forever only if my people Israel would repent and come to Christ. We must conclude, though, that Paul has much more compassion than God. Man, it is my desire, my will, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is my desire that everyone be saved. God said, no, 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 no. I didn't choose those people. I only chose those people. Well, that's ludicrous. Paul's heart for his people were not greater than, was not greater love than God's. And then the rest, I could give you more scriptures. I'm going to skip it right now. Uh, let's just put them up here real fast. There, there are verses that in the New Testament say it's God's will that no one perish but come to a saving knowledge of Christ. He says, uh, this is good and pleases God who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Ezekiel, for God doesn't take pleasure in the death of anyone. He says, repent and live. Romans 11, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that they may have, he may have mercy on them all. So you can see where I'm landing. I'm leaning toward the Arminian side, but I do appreciate the Calvin side as well. I would be one of those three-point Calvinists, two and a half. But ultimately, it really doesn't matter. Why? Because you might be thinking, so am I chosen or not? Am I elected or not? I don't know. Well, how, how can I know? How can I have assurance? Then my response would be, well, then receive Christ, and then you'll be chosen. Well, I don't want to receive Christ right now. Well, then you may not be chosen. But I want to be chosen. Then receive Christ. But I'm not ready yet. Well, then receive Christ. Reach out and grab that life preserver. He'll pull you in. He gives us a free will. You know, we have free will. And uh, so let's pray. Lord, I don't know if there's someone in here who has never reached out to grab a hold of you as their Savior. Um, And therefore, they don't have assurance that they are chosen. I pray that today will be the day where they will reach out and say, Jesus, I know that I fall short. I know that I'm in deep trouble eternally. I I need a Savior. I need forgiveness. Uh, I need to be, I I want to become a child of God. Uh, So if that's you this morning, you simply have to say, Lord, I want to know you. Forgive my sin. Come into my life. And and direct me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you did pray that, guess what? You're chosen. 
Amen.